Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about Juneteenth, which is a holiday that's today. Women Love Socialism, But Why? We'll be joined by Romina Bacha of the Heritage Foundation. We'll also talk with her about how bad America's debt is. Then, clips from Trump's 2020 announcement rally last night. It was wild. And last, Biden up by 10 points over the president. I don't think so. And last, why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Well, today's a holiday. On this first five today, I want to talk about that holiday very briefly. It's called Juneteenth. It is a unique holiday. Many Americans have not heard about it. But the short story is that back on June 19th in 1865, the in Texas, a general, the General Gordon Granger, after the, after the Confederacy has surrendered, was assigned the mission to come to Texas and to announce that the Emancipation Proclamation had actually happened. To be clear, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation effective January 1st, 1863. It was two and a half years later when slave owners and slaves in Texas uh, got the news. And so this General Gordon Granger came to Texas to read a announcement from the president about the uh, surrendering of the Confederacy and about the idea that all slaves uh, here in America were free. I love the idea that everyone celebrate the this Juneteenth holiday. They obviously merged June 19th into Juneteenth. Uh, Texas was one of the first states that made it an actual holiday, I think in 1980 or so. And now there are 44 states that honor Juneteenth. And they have celebrations, essentially celebrating freedom. But the reason I love it is because Juneteenth is was one of the steps along the way, along the Civil War, of moving America toward what was to become a more and more perfect union. It was the idea that slavery was inconsistent with the idea of America, the idea of our founding recorded in our declaration and in other founding documents, essentially the idea that each of us are, were all equal and that we're born with rights from our creator. Those rights exist and are ours simply because we were born. Ending slavery, moving the uh, announcement of slavery's having been ended by the Emancipation Proclamation to Texas was just another step along the way to bring us more to, toward a more uh, perfect union. I love celebrating Juneteenth, acknowledging it. I love celebrating when women got the right to vote. I love celebrating all sorts of history uh, in America that ties back to the, the founding idea of our country rooted and founded um, on liberty. And that, my friends, is today's first five. So I want to turn now. We have a guest joining us. I mentioned in the first, uh, in our introduction today, uh, we have her on the phone, and her name is. Uh, first of all, let me just say I'm so glad she could join us because we. Uh, this is a a great topic, and we hit this topic so often on this show. But I want to hit it again. Talk about the idea 
uh, of socialism, and in particular, why socialism seems to appeal to women. And so we have Romina Baccia on the line. Uh, she's joining us from Washington, D.C. She's with the Heritage Foundation. I think we have a picture of her to show you. Uh, she is the director of the Groven M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget Institute for Economic Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. She's, she's a prolific writer. She uh, testifies various places. She's on all sorts of national media. But I want to get her on today to get her thoughts about this poll that was done recently. It was an Axios poll, or an Axios on HBO poll, that essentially said, in America, 55% of women prefer socialism. I, I have a problem with this, Romina. So let me, first of all, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So what do you think explains this? I mean, the, the, this poll is revealing in America that more women than men are sympathetic to or uh, in some way drawn to socialism. What's your sense about why that would be? I think it's because people misunderstand what socialism means and what it is and what it represents. Whereas traditionally, socialism was defined as government control of the means of production and distribution, meaning the government owning major in industries and controlling uh, major aspects of our economic lives. That's not what today's generation thinks of when they hear the word socialism. They hear social as something that is good, and so they consider socialism a, a more compassionate kind of economic system that takes care of those are, who are most vulnerable, that occupies itself with reducing inequality in society. So they're not thinking of the socialism of the Soviet Union or even what we're seeing in Cuba and Venezuela. They're, they're much more thinking of a kind of coddly kind of uh, state welfare uh, uh, system, uh, perhaps more like uh, Sweden and Norway, which uh, those are capitalist nations, but they have extensive uh, welfare states. So it's a question of definition. I think in this case, we know Gallup has found that people's definitions of socialism have changed significantly. There's been a major rebranding effort that's been going on to rebrand socialism as something good and nice. Um, if you will, this is a Trojan horse, and it seems to be succeeding. So we have to remind people what socialism truly means, and then we can remind them of its effects, because we know just how this is going to work out, because we've, we've tried it many times in history, thankfully never in the United States, and hopefully we'll never have to find out firsthand just what socialism really means. That is a great answer. I love all the points that you made. I want to embellish on something related to what people think it is. If you think the government is going to be able to provide things for people, it, they don't, I agree with you wholeheartedly that, that people who embrace socialism today, they don't really mean they want the government to own the means of production and control all the economy. They just want the government to adjust things to make things fairer. And fairer meaning they, there's a concern for people of low income, people struggling, and somehow the government should make things fairer. But it always must involve an element of coercion. The government can't make things fair and get more money to some people without taking it away from other people. It is why, I think you, uh, you had written something about this, socialism always ends up in tyranny. Is, do you agree with that? 
Uh, that's right. And I think what we're seeing among uh, many young people today in the United States and also many of these women who responded to this poll favorably is that they're conflating equity, a concern for fairness, for a level playing field, for opportunity for all with, in, with equality. You cannot have equality and freedom coexisting because what freedom brings out is that we aren't equal. We are equal. We should be equal before the law, but we aren't all equal in our abilities. We aren't all equal in our intellect. We aren't all equal in our motivations. Um, we are unique individuals with different unique capabilities uh, that produce different kinds of values uh, in society. And somebody who uh, works very hard, works extra hours, uh, saves uh, his or her money, there, we're going to find different outcomes uh, when it comes to earnings and how much wealth that individual is able to amass than, than somebody who takes more leisure time, who enjoys spending their time in different ways uh, than working, or who chooses a, a job um, that, that where they can have meaning, say, in the nonprofit sector over a more risky job, say, working on an oil rig. We, we see all of these uh, factors play out in how much people earn and how much they save and the wealth that they're able to generate. And this whole notion of uh, equality of outcomes flies in the face of it. It is inequality is a necessary outcome of our freedom to make choices. And uh, it's very different from equity, which is about fairness, such that the person that works harder is able to make more, is able to earn more. Um, and when you, when you ask young people, do you really believe in equality? They believe really what they mean is equity because then when you say, okay, say you worked really hard on the math test, you studied all night, you got an A, and the person next to you uh, went out drinking with his friends and he got a C. Um, do you think it's fair if both of you get a B? Because that's equal, right? <laughs> we'll take the A and the C and we'll give you both a B. And they all go, no, no, that's not fair. So you, you see it's really about conflating equity for equality, but you can't have uh, freedom and equality because uh, in order to make us all equal in terms of outcomes, like you said, it requires coercion and it ultimately leads to tyranny. Very well said. I love that example of the college grades and the, uh, you know, the idea that you want what you, we want the results of what you work to earn and everybody does. Everybody does what is their workforce and their grades in school and a thousand other ways. We expect to have reward for hard work and labor. I, I love that example uh, and, and I'm glad you raised it. It's kind of interesting though, uh, there has been so much argument about in our society that well, okay, some things uh, are going to be, have unequal outcomes, uh, but you know, things like universal health care, that was one in this poll, one example of where women were saying, hey, you know, we just, we, we've got to have health care provided for people and this just seems only fair. Health care is a right. And so this, it gets people thinking that this thing that can be provided by the government, access to health care, can be provided by the government without any impact on the quality, the access, the extent of health care. It's, it's another myth that that is just a derived from ignorance about the, the role of free markets and, the, and, and freedom and the provision of health care under a system that has freedom versus a system controlled by the government. But I think that leftists have con uh, succeeded in convincing women especially that health care should be a right. Yes, 
um, you're absolutely right, and it, it does represent wishful thinking, uh, not wanting to consider that there are always trade-offs and that uh, resources are limited. And we need some mechanism for allocating the limited resources that we have in light of unlimited human wants and needs. And the market, the free enterprise system, is the most effective and fair and just system that relies on individuals cooperating towards their own benefits, um, serving each other uh, in the process. And it's the most effective mechanism for allocating scarce uh, resources among competing uses. We wouldn't need to have this conversation if uh, if money was falling from heaven <laughs> and right. uh, there were no resource constraints. But when it comes to universal health care, the idea sounds very good. And in, in, in the United States of America, uh, we don't leave people to die on the streets. Everyone has access to health care. The question is, how do we pay for it and what kind of health care? And we don't need to look very far to see what a Medicare for All proposal, which is a real proposal being considered in this Congress in the United States today, what that would look like. Um, because one of the requirements of that proposal is that all private health insurance would be banned. The government would control the entire health care sector. And you don't need to look very far to see how that's working out. You can look to uh, England and their national uh, health insurance system, and you can also look to Canada. And the way that uh, those limited resources are allocated is via government rationing. And it is not universal access, and it is not fairly distributed. In fact, what you find is that those people who are politically smart, who are politically well-connected, who generally tend to be higher-income individuals, um, actually are able to get more of the care they are able to secure more of those nationalized resources for themselves. Um, there is no equal and fair distribution in uh, these nationalized health systems. Um, ultimately, what you find is worse outcomes. Uh, yep. the, the UK, for example, has much worse uh, recovery rates and also care rates for individuals with some of the worst diseases, like cancer, for example. They have higher death rates. And uh, you have longer waiting lines and waiting for care with, with some people dying, in fact, just waiting for care. So Canadians who have money, they come to the United States to um, have a lot of treatments done here because of those long waiting lines. And where are Americans going to go? If we, if we turn to uh, such an ineffective government rationed system where bureaucrats control health care choices and decisions, um, where, where are we going to escape to? Uh, I, don't, I think this is a very dangerous idea that is based on uh, a wishful thinking that doesn't consider uh, the realities of what government rationing actually means. I just love everything you said. Thank you so much. I meant to mention to our listeners, we're speaking again with uh, Romina Bacha, and she also, um, as well as being at the Heritage Foundation, director of the Grover Herman Center for Federal Budget, um, she also has a degree in economics from George Mason, uh, a master's degree in economics from George Mason, and a bachelor of science in economics from George Mason with a concentration in data analysis, which leads me to a point I wanted to make. You, you explain things so eloquently and so well. It is incumbent on people on the conservative side to spell out the kind of arguments you're making because to the uneducated or the person who hasn't focused on economics, it sounds like the argument between 
leftists offering free health care and people on the right offering free markets and your responsibility to track down the kind of insurance you would like and find a means to pay for it and and, and pursue and take care of your own health care. It's easier to sell the things that you uh, that the left wants to sell by just saying it's all free and it doesn't matter. But it's it is really counting on the ignorance of in this particular poll, women and millennials assume just not recognizing the fundamental economic realities that you are spelling out. And they're not that, you know, sexy and exciting to spell out for people. They're just they're just reality, though. They're just facts. And I think stories are in, so important for people to try to help uh, Americans understand the dangers of these programs that are being pushed by uh, leftists. You know, there's Medicare for all, which is just basically socialized medicine. What really happens in socialized medicine countries? Why do the wealthy come to America when they can uh, to seek medical care? The, these, the, this, um, the need to have that, under, that understanding spread, especially among women, women is just, is just an enormous need in our country. So I, I love that you're doing it. I have about 10 more topics I wanna hit in our five minutes we have left. So let me start with, <laughs> so uh, let, let me start with, you uh, did some work uh, related to where we are in the debt in our country. And uh, the Heritage Foundation's had uh, several pieces out. You, you've written and, and been part of, uh, I guess, panels that talked about it. But, you know, the debt is one of those issues where everybody will say, oh, yes, every candidate especially, I'm concerned about the debt. Yes, it's terrible. We have to get spending under control. And, the, and yet... It never happens. We go to Washington or in, we're in Texas here, Austin or wherever your state capital is. And the temptation of politicians is to spend to create programs to help, allegedly help people. And the debt gets worse and worse. And there never seems to be a political price to pay. People don't turn against their Congress member or their state representative, say, well, I'm not gonna vote for you again because you didn't do anything about the debt. It seems with this problem, we all agree it's a problem, no political consequence, no incentive to solve it. So uh, I'll start with just the idea. Can you tell us in an overview economics way, how bad is our debt? Give us some, some data points, help us understand how bad America's debt is. Yeah, so one data point is the uh, average or typical American household earns about $60,000 per year, working all year long. The national debt, if we divided it up by every American, not household, every American, um, is already over $67,000. Now, if you look at a three-person household, that's over $200,000. Um, that is a mortgage without a house that is on the head of every American person because the way the federal government is able to borrow in international and domestic markets is on the credit of the American taxpayer. It is uh, with the understanding that Americans uh, will be able to produce enough in terms of goods and services to be able to service the debt. And our interest is already rising despite these very low interest rates that are frankly artificially low because of Federal Reserve policy that is undermining the stability of the dollar, of our money in the long run. Um, and even with those low interest rates, uh, the interest on the debt rose by 30% over just the past two years. Imagine what your interest is, say if you have a mortgage or a car loan, and that went up by more than 30% by one third over just the past two years. Many American families would find themselves 
in a bind to continue financing uh, that interest. And that is what's happening uh, with our country. Those are the numbers, the $22 trillion national debt on a level that hopefully more Americans can understand. It's already more than what the entire U.S. economy produces in goods and services on, a, on, a, on an annual basis. And that only accounts for the debt we've already incurred, that we've already borrowed. It doesn't take into account all of the promises, all of the unfunded obligations the federal government is confronting. Uh, Medicare and Social Security, they're, they're, they're going to run out of money uh, in the near-term future. Uh, for Social Security rep recipients, and this is not some far-off future for the next generation, but people retired today could be faced with a 25% benefit cut if we don't fix this program. Uh, Medicare is running out of money even sooner. That affects Medicare Part A. So the, the overall uh, gap between these promises for just Social Security and Medicare and what we have set aside to pay with current tax policies is about half a million dollars per person. So <laughs> it's know. unbelievable. The numbers are staggering. They are. And, and I'm looking at two different pieces that came from the Heritage website. And for our listeners, all the documents or all the articles I'm referring to today, you can find it on our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, go down, list of links. Several little data points I want to pull out that I, I love your summary. I love putting it in the, in the, um, the, in the, way that many people can understand the idea of your family earns this or your, your family's debt is this, but here's what your debt is for the country. But here's some interesting things. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid currently consume 72% of current tax revenue. So these are not programs paying for our military, not programs paying for the FAA keeping us safe or infrastructure, all these things we agree, especially the military. 72% of our current tax revenue is eaten up by Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. But the one that really caught my attention. There are a bunch of facts I'll throw out. 20, by 2025, the interest on the national debt, the interest on the debt will be more than our, our more than defense spending. I mean, this is, it is untenable. One last little factoid I was going to throw in, then I have a question for you, um, was the idea that, um, let me just find it again, um, uh, interest on the debt will, oh yeah, interest, Spending on interest on the debt will exceed Medicaid within one year and five years overtake all defense spending. By 30 years from now, just interest on the debt will be projected to be the single largest federal expenditure. So, Romina, you're with Heritage Foundation. You guys are the idea factory of the country. Do you have a suggestion mm -hmm. for Congress, like what they're supposed to do about this in a realistic way? Yes, we actually have a plan, and we have had a plan for many years now, and we just released our plan for this year. It's called the Blueprint for Balance, and it contains more than 250 policy reforms uh, to put the budget on a path to balance, balance before the end of the 10-year period, which is the budget cycle that Congress considers, um, while making the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act permanent, because this is something that people also need to understand. It is not for a lack of tax revenue that our deficits and debt are growing at this enormous rate. It is actually tax revenue is going up even after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It is overspending. It is out of control spending. It is the fact that health care spending is growing at an average rate of 6% annually. Now, if you think about President Trump is proud of getting 3% growth. 3% economic growth, yep. health care costs are, are growing at twice the rate. 
And then we have Social Security, and we have other welfare programs, and we have all the spending increases that Congress has voted for, including just today the House voted on a package for a trillion dollars in spending that blows through spending restraints. So we have a plan. It's called the Blueprint for Balance. It's available at Heritage.org. Um, the, pr- the president's budget, President Trump's budget, includes about 61 percent of the Blueprint for Balance uh, proposal. So we've made good progress in getting the administration on board with the vast majority of our proposals. They've also been introduced in Congress, more than half of them as part of the Republican Study Committee budget in the House of Representatives. But not, the budget hasn't uh, gotten a vote. Congress is proceeding with spending money this year without actually having agreed on a budget. So what the American people can do is they, the, their lawmakers need to hear from them. They need to know that this is a serious issue that the American people care about and that the American people expect results. And uh, the American people should demand that Congress pass a budget. There's a bill in the Senate by Senator Braun that says no budget, no pay. Senator Joni Ernst has a bill uh, that says no budget, no recess. These are common sense proposals that say Congress's number one responsibility is to actually pass a budget. They haven't done that in so many years. In and years, yeah. spending continues. So that's the first step. Uh, we need to actually uh, put in place incentives and enforcement measures to make Congress do its job, and it might just have to mean that we don't pay them until they get the job done. I could go over that. I'll tell you, Romina, I found on your website, on Heritage's website, the blueprint for balance, the federal budget for fiscal year 2020. And I was actually going to print out the whole thing because I, I, I would love to dive into it. It was like 320 pages. So I settled for printing out the table of contents. And I note many, uh, you, you had a lot of involvement in writing this and preparing, analyzing things. I think why I so appreciate Heritage is because you have so many substantive, serious experts who will take on the hard policy issues and give Congress a path forward. Because what I was saying earlier, what happens is there are people in both parties who run for office and they do really mean that they care about the debt and they and the, and the annual deficit and they want to do something about it. But any proposals that anyone makes, even when Republicans attempted, whenever it was, 10, 12 years ago, talk about making minor adjustments to Medicare uh, so that we, or, or to Social Security, so that perhaps people who uh, are not in financial need, maybe they get less, maybe you change the age of eligibility. Any effort to even touch any program is instantly vilified by the uh, mainstream media, by the leftists in this country, and you know portrayed in some horrific way, pushing granny over the cliff in the wheelchair. And so the idea that Heritage has put together this blueprint, I just think it gives candidates something easy to say. I want to fix the budget. No one person in Congress can, no one member of the Senate or House, but if we all got behind this budget, or, or at least this was the baseline discussion, you give them a way to say, I'm serious about it and I'll vote for this without having to go out on a limb and say, well, I think we should cut X and we should trim Y and we should change this. All the things that can be so easily vilified. I love that you guys do this and I love that you created this blueprint. So you just mentioned for our listeners again, but tell them how they can find this blueprint. It's on heritage.org slash blueprint for balance. And for additional educational tools around the federal budget, which is just so big and complex, we also have a website called federalbudgetinpictures.com. 
Great. Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to ask you to come on another time because I actually loved several things that you wrote and talked about. Um, I can't get to them today, but I love, I heard your commentary about uh, the, gri- the gripe that you know, rich people don't pay their fair share and that nobody really got a tax cut, both of which were false. So I'm going to say, Romina, you are just a great guest. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. It was my pleasure. Great, and I would love to ask you back, and we can talk about whether uh, people actually, yeah, you know, got a tax cut and who pays their fair share. So that, my friends, was, again, was Romina Bacha. She's with the Heritage Foundation, full of information. And honestly, they talk about issues that it's so, so hard for the average politician, the average member of either party, House or Senate, to get into the weeds on any particular things to fix the federal budget and the debt because it's so easily vilified, so easily attacked, and uh, it just is easier for politicians to go to Washington, keep spending, thinking somehow, someday, this will get fixed, and it really is at a crisis point. So love Heritage, love having her on. Okay, I want to turn uh, last uh, today and uh, right now and talk about uh, President Trump's um, rally. I'm going to guess most people listening to this show also listen last night to President Trump making his announcement speech in Orlando that he is again running for president, that he's a candidate for the president in 2020. Uh, There were just a, uh, it was a great, great rally, full of energy, full of enthusiasm. And I want to just, just share with you a couple of clips about it, but just really to talk to you about where his head, where he's coming from. So I believe my wonderful producer, Matt, has these, um, and he's so great to pull them together as I get them to him last minute. But here's President Trump last night in Orlando, this very first clip uh, about uh, taking care of citizens. If we can just play that one, that'd be great. It's the great state of Florida. Very historic, because exactly four years ago this week, I announced my campaign for President of the United States. And it turned out to be more than just a political campaign. It turned out to be a great political movement because of you. A great movement. It's a movement made up of hardworking patriots who love their country, love their flag, love their children, and who believe that a nation must care for its own citizens first. Okay, what I want to say about that is President Trump really signaled in this speech last night, I think it was like an hour and a half or so, he signaled what he's going to run on in 2020. He'll add other things, he'll add other, you know, policies and ideas, but he really signaled to America the central things he's running on. Number one, and this was why I want to play that one first, he was a shift in American political thought, a huge shift, to use the way he pronounces it, shift, where back to the idea that the American government works to protect the American people, that our place and our role in the world, the government's role, is not to uh, have abandoned borders let everybody in who wants to come. It is not to put the Americans into the interests of Americans in second, third, or fourth place in our trade deals, that we actually have a right to fair trade and, and to insist on trade with other nations that doesn't always disadvantage America. It had to do with treaties we had entered, a variety of treaties. He went through some of those. The idea, though, of that it's okay to love America. 
It's okay to have America's policies be in support, be supportive of the American people and the American economy. And so he's just hanging with us, America first. This was a breath of fresh air to millions of Americans in 2016 who watched what happened in Washington, watched the American left taking control of federal government and really treating America as though we really don't deserve to be great. We don't deserve to have policies that protect us first, that we are kind of apologetic and, and deferential to other countries, that maybe we really, we really shouldn't have been involved in this or that. This was a guy saying no. Trump is saying no, actually America first. Second clip, this was a, he took several shots at the, at the news um, folks who were there at the rally. Here's a quick clip on that. By the way, that is a lot of fake news back there. That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay. The reason I want to play that one is this. He took several shots at the media throughout the evening. And I, you know, people who get upset with President Trump and say, well, he's not very professional. He's not very presidential. He shouldn't have said that. This is not just nasty, childish, mean-spiritedness. This is a president pointing out that the radical leftists who run the media in this country, the, the people who pose as mainstream media, but in fact spend all their time demolishing, decrying, uh, criticizing, taunting, uh, just in every way demeaning conservative ideas, Republican politicians, conservative uh, platforms and policies. This is Trump again reminding his listeners at the rally and everyone who watched on television don't trust the media they lie to you they lie about trump they lie about every issue that there is they lie about policies they are leftists this is a vital piece of the trump effort to keep america together and keep america strong is to keep americans tuned into the fact the media hasn't suddenly become honest or fair they are leftists and he called them out over and over and over the next clip i want to do he talks a lot about the um uh, the Mueller investigation and there was this uh, clip actually uh the uh he, he was making reference to the, Senate, the only collusion was between hillary and the dnc it was a, and he was referring to two things about this clip but this the one i want to play next is just only collusion between hillary and the dnc this was our chance to reclaim our government from a permanent political class that enriched itself at your expense as i said on a wonderful beautiful day at my inauguration we did not merely transfer power from one party to another, but we transferred power back to you, the proud citizens of the United States of America. Okay, I want to jump in and talk about this one. Trump did this over and over in the speech. Instead of saying, I, 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 me, 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 I, I, I did this, he constantly referred to his policies, to the advances, to the things he stood for as we, as a movement. He's including the audience, he's including the American people. And the thing that's so uh, rich about this is, number one, that this is in great contrast to President Obama, where there used to be jokes about how many times he would say the word I 
or me, this is President Obama, in speech after speech after speech after speech, he talked about himself and his greatness. Trump, much as people talk about him as arrogant and blustery, he has created a bond with millions of Americans who feel like he's on board with them, they're on board with him, they wanted this movement that Trump started. So he really bond, it was a message of bonding with people. Now we'll get to the next clip, uh, which was this collusion. He, he made a lot of reference to the Mueller investigation, a lot of reference to how the left has actually uh, would not accept the, the outcome of the 2016 elections and has essentially spent two years attacking him. There are like three clips in a row, I guess, on this. Uh, yeah, three clips in a row there, or two clips in a row. Hillary and the DNC. We went through the greatest witch hunt in political history. The only collusion was committed by the Democrats, the fake news media, and their operatives, and the people who funded the phony dossier, crooked Hillary Clinton, and the DNC. It was all an illegal attempt to overturn the results of the election, spy on our campaign, which is what they did, and subvert our democracy. Remember, the insurance policy just in case Hillary Clinton lost. Remember the insurance policy. Okay, there were people in the mainstream media criticizing President Trump about his speech, of course, but criticizing President Trump in particular about going back to the whole Mueller thing. My friends, if President Trump did not mention in this speech launching his campaign for 2020 that he absolutely was grotesquely attacked that he was the victim of a scandal a, a i i call it a, a coup attempt from inside the fbi if he didn't mention that he wouldn't be trump he wouldn't be a normal human being People do not take being vilified, lied about, attacked, maligned, headline after headline for two years, accusing him of something he didn't do, and then just say, oh, good, thank goodness they've dropped that, which they haven't dropped, by the way. They're still talking about maybe get him on obstruction. And so this is uh, Trump. Just he's not going to let the Mueller thing go. He's going to have it be a central piece of the campaign moving forward. He's going to have the fake media. He's going to have the idea of America first is a moral, good, right thing to do. He's going to talk about the Mueller thing. And then the last thing, we got to, I think, skip um, one of the uh, links I sent you, Matt. But there's one that I just uh, imagine if the Dems were in charge. He has, there's actually two of them. Imagine no wall and the caravans. This is, if you, anyway, if you can play those, that'd be great. He had two clips to talk about what if the Democrats were really in charge. And, you know, we couldn't get the wall approved by the Democrats even though they voted for it four years ago and six years ago and didn't get built, but they voted for it. All of a sudden, Trump is president. We don't want a wall. Can you imagine? Can you imagine those caravans without having the barriers and walls that we've already put up and that are up? This country would be a mess like you wouldn't believe. Okay, this is going to be and it should be a theme over and over and over and over. The security of America the southern border absolutely abandoned by the American left, having the American people start to envision 
You're going to put these people in charge, the Democrats in charge, who won't even fund the wall, who won't even fund Border Patrol, who see America, the beauty of our social media. America has seen video after video of people flooding the southern border, not just from Central America, but now we're talking about from Angola, from other countries in Africa. We have seen overrun the border, no possibility of capturing the the border patrol estimates they capture about one in ten who cross the border illegally so the picture of america with an overrun southern border has got to be a central theme i got to quit with the clips because i want to uh, tell you a couple more things and just do it in summary way um he actually talked about the idea and i love he's planting the visual in the minds of the american people what exactly would America be if we didn't if if we didn't have someone who wants border security running this country? He also did a great thing, which was he pointed again to the idea that the Congress, in entertaining the FBI, the whole attack on him that was came from inside the FBI, the whole Mueller frame up, the complete frame up of a president in order to remove him. It wasn't just an attack on him, Trump, and on his administration. It was an attack on you, on the American voter, on the people that rally, on the nearly 63 million people who wanted President Trump be president. What the left was saying in having the Mueller investigation go forward, in having the just complete witch hunt, false accusation, just capture the Congress's time and attention, what Trump drove home was that was an attack on the American people, on the very existence of the judicial system, the very existence of law enforcement, the very, just just the very existence of, of our country. So he really, he did a stellar job. Uh, naturally, the media didn't like it. I'm going to just tell you, uh, there, I'll, I'm going to return to polling data in just one moment. But two funny things, or one funny thing, I guess, about the, um, the thing last night, the, the rally. About six minutes into the rally... CNN, who was there covering it live, like all the other big networks, and they've got a camera, and they're and they're panning, you know, covering him. I mean, the place was packed. It was, you know, wherever it was, it was over capacity. It was a massive crowd. 120,000 people wanted to come. 20,000 got in. More people outside couldn't even get in. CNN pulled their coverage six minutes into the rally because... At some point when President Trump pointed to the media in the back and was saying, you know, fake news, the audience started chanting CNN. And I I hate to say this word, but CNN sucks. The audience started chanting that. CNN was so livid, they cut their coverage of the the, uh, rally and spent the rest of the evening griping about, oh, President Trump is doing the same old talking points. Um, But really, it was an opportunity. And I want you to keep the visual in mind, if you didn't watch it last night, this this uh, twenty thousand person stadium was you know filled to capacity, standing room only, crowds outside. You know six times as many people wanted to come as could come. People waited in line forty four zero hours to get inside to get a seat in the Orlando heat. So this was this is these are people very enthused about the president. But now I want to turn our last segment today and just talk a little bit about the polling. There has been polling recently showing that Biden, Joe Biden, uh, is leading President Trump in key swing states by up to 10 points. And 
So I'm going to just remind you, when Biden did his announcement rally, he first of all, I'm pretty sure, did the announcement on, like on video, so there's nobody there. And then the rally, the first rally he had, he had a tiny crowd. I mean, it was something like it was under a thousand people. So Biden can't gather a crowd. There were times, there were other stories we've talked about in the show before where a reporter shows up uh, to cover a Biden rally and he got behind schedule. Was, and he wrote this in his report. I got so worried I was running late. How am I going to get there? I got to get near the front. Got to be able to take pictures. And he charges in. He realizes there's nobody here. I mean, there were a small crowd there. He easily made his way to the front row. We could take pictures. And how the cameras in the Biden rallies always stay focused on him. They never pan back to show the massive audience because there never is one. However, having said all of that, there is some bad polling data out relating to whether or not President Trump will win re-election. It's obviously very early, but I wanted to mention a couple key points about it. Number one, remember how off, how wrong the pollsters were in 2016. Polls are only as good as the audience, as the selection of the people polled, whether those people are representational of actual voters. But even, in, uh, even given that, there was a story out about how President Trump had pollsters on his team. His internal campaign team hired pollsters, did some polling, and discovered some not good numbers. He was behind Biden. Someone apparently on one of those uh, people hired by his campaign uh, leaked those numbers to the media, showing that, that uh, Trump was down um, in, in some key states. And so Trump fired the, which you should, of course, you can't have your own team leaking stuff to the media. But there are, there are several polls out that carry the same message. A Quinnipiac University poll, usually very reliable. Um, they are, uh, you know, they have people saying basically, you know, Elizabeth, this is Quinnipiac saying in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren would beat Trump. In California, Kamala Harris, only by one point. I think that's one's dubious. Uh, Beto O'Rourke um, in Texas would beat Trump. Um, they even have uh, Buttigieg, the, the former South Bend mayor, would beat Trump. They also have Bernie Sanders leading President Trump 48-42%, uh, and Biden leading Trump 50-41. So Quinnipiac has uh, some bad numbers out. Uh, the GOP is getting nervous about that. They, they, and so, But there are some recent numbers saying that Trump is already kind of cutting into Biden's lead in the very key swing states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I don't want to uh, blithely dismiss these polls because it is of concern. When you look at our economy, you look at our uh, strength and national security situation, you look at the uh, jobs coming back, you look at the, the wholesome, amazing economy, you look at the economy, best employment numbers for uh, women, African-Americans, Hispanics, um, Asians, all these numbers, people are working. And people always say at the end of the day, you know, people vote their pocketbooks. Well, it, it can seem alarming that there is not the just obvious, you know, Trump ahead, he's got, he's got it won, you know, uh, cakewalk kind of polling numbers, but they aren't there right now. But I want to raise, uh, I guess, at least three points. Number one, President Trump's campaign manager for 2020, this guy Brad Parscale, uh, he dismissed all the polling. He said polling is the biggest joke in politics and basically said it's impossible in the modern world to get accurate polling based on who actually votes. 
Second, just keep in mind what happened in Orlando. You had, as I said, 20,000 people there, 40 hours wait, 120,000 requests of people to come, wanted tickets, and CNN, you know, you know, having a hissy fit and leaving, um, was is down basically 30% in their viewership. So even though CNN, you know, moans and whines and complains and, and, and shoots uh, arrows at Trump, no one's listening to them. The last thing I'll say, within the 24 hours after the campaign ended, the uh, the uh, rally ended, in fact, it's not even 24 hours, less than 24 hours, the Trump campaign raised an additional 24.8 million dollars. People heard the rally and they liked it. And if you watched the rally at all, you saw that the enthusiasm for Trump is, is through the chart, is, is off the charts. So I wanna just, uh, we're going to get to why it matters to you, but I, I want to say this about polling numbers. It is incumbent on the average Joe American, on you and me and everyone we know, to be advocates for this upcoming election because the media is against Trump and because the whatever he does or says is contorted and lied about, and he is a non-traditional candidate. He does not speak in a way, in fact, there was polling out saying that the majority of Republicans find the way President Trump speaks to be kind of off-putting. We have to be the spokespeople, you, I, everyone who cares about this country, for what has happened, the tremendous progress in this country under President Trump. We have to be persuading our friends and our neighbors. Number two, if the Republicans in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate would begin to back President Trump instead of shying away from him, which almost all of them do, you could name on one hand the number of Republican members of the U.S. House or Senate who strongly, consistently, stalwartly stand up for President Trump. I think Trump's numbers would be much better. He would look better in, in various states and to his own voters had there been support from the Republicans in the House and the Senate for President Trump. You need to urge your congressman, your senator, to do that, to step up. The idea that Trump pretty much had to fight alone with, um, I'll give a few exceptions in the U.S. House, you know, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, Matt Gates. Pretty much, Trump had to fight alone the entire FBI national security apparatus coming after him with a bogus, framed-up hoax accusation, and he should have been surrounded by the Republicans, you know, House and Senate, decrying this. Maybe, just maybe, between now and 2020, those people in Congress can get the message that. They need to be seen supporting the president, helping the president. I think it'll help us poll numbers. It'll help the perception. But really, I think, you know, at the end of the day, with all of this uh, polling, which is always unreliable, and it always depends who they ask and all that, I don't think a sane person could take a look at that rally that happened in Orlando and decide, nah, I don't think Trump, Trump's in trouble. The people are happy with him. And you know what, my friends, I'm going to have to do this. I see we're out of time on my happy time clock here. I have prepared the what I almost do at the end of every show, which is why it matters to you. They're great slides, why it matters to you. Um, I'm going to have them up at our website, which is americacanwetalk.org, but I've run out of time today to get to them. And I'm really sorry about that because I love ending the show showing you the slides about why these things matter to you. But I don't want to... Um, I don't want to go past my time here at my happy studio at Real News PR and Real News Communication Network. So 
I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Thank you for tuning in every day. Please come every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, so we can talk truth about America. If you're watching this on Twitter, this is our first day. We have the, the show. It always goes out on Facebook Live. It's always on YouTube. And now it's going out on Twitter, on Periscope. So if you're watching on Periscope, this is my first time putting the show out on, on Twitter. Uh, please share it. Please share this page. Please like this page. Follow me on, on um, YouTube. YouTube, subscribe me on YouTube. This whole, my show is all about preserving and saving this precious country. I'd love to have all of us on board trying to do that. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Speak up for America because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you